Pass, 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 pass. Pass the poutine. This is the poutine. Fries, cheese curds, and chicken gravy. This is the poutine. Hi everyone, it's your host Nina from Past the Poutine Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Dorothy. She is from Seattle. Hi. Hey, Dorothy, welcome to the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> no, I haven't done an introduction in, in a while, so I'm a little bit rusty, but I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm so happy to talk with you. No, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm such a creepy stalker and how I found, I want to tell people how I found you was I was looking through a Facebook group and it was like subtle Asian women um, and someone made a post about like uh, can women share some stories about if they found like love later in life and I think the girl who posted it was probably in her late 20s early 30s and I guess like being an Asian woman that is the end of your life right <laughs> so I was like very curious to hear more of these stories and then I came across your comment which um, you talked about how you found love, I think when you were 37, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I was 30, maybe I was 38. I was 38. Okay, perfect. So I was wondering if you can kind of share that story, like, like where were, like what was happening? Like, I'm, I'm so interested in this. Um, so I feel like I, one thing I just want to preface, which I thought was funny, because I think someone made a comment that most of the people who responded <laughs> all talked about finding love in their 20s and finally someone yes. said no she I, said people yeah. in their 30s <laughs> i was reading it. it was like i found my boyfriend when we were 22 and now i'm 32 and we're still together and i'm like that is not the answer to this question <laughs> <laughs> that was funny um so the so i always tell you know, like people ask me how that happened i usually kind of tell people that um i sort of have to start my story in the middle as opposed to from the beginning the i'll see if i can do the the short the short version of the of the pre-story <laughs> is that i pretty much spent like you know my most of my adult life doing things sort of the way our our very well-meaning asian parents would probably expect you know like i went to i went oh. to good schools i went you know i worked for really good companies i had great jobs i you know went back for business school and and I worked for, and then I worked for um, a big tech company for about 10 years. Wow, okay. And then at some point, I just like, you know, this, it, it wasn't, like, a lot of things just weren't clicking. Like, there were times that were, where it was awesome, but there were other times, like, this just doesn't feel right. And so the big step I took was to quit. Oh, my God. Give myself a sabbatical. I think that was in 01. And um, and so it was during that time that I sort of exited a long term relationship and I started to travel and sort of during those travels, I just said, you know, the only thing that I've ever been sure of is that I wanted to um, build my family, in, at least in part through adoption. Like, that was the only thing I'd known since I was, like, 10. How? Like, how do you even get there? Like, that's, you know what I mean? It's probably, like, a whole nother conversation some okay. other time. But my mom was adopted. What? You know, during the 40s. There was this whole idea of um, one of the terms that I've heard in the last few years that just really spoke to me. There are biological families and there are logical families. Oh, you know, okay. just the whole idea that, you know, the people that you consider family aren't always the people that you are blood related to, but the people who actually, you know, create that that container for you that makes Absolutely. you feel loved and accepted and greater. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that your biological family can't be your logical family. It doesn't also doesn't mean that your biological family has any less 
value. It's just a different, it's, it's the idea of being chosen. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so I took I took a year off. I traveled, you know, sort of newly single. My my sister said, oh, some friends and I are going to India. Do you want to go with us? And so I said, okay. So I bought a, I bought a ticket and I went to Asia for three weeks. And, um, and we kind of trekked about India for like, I don't know, a couple weeks. And and I think at one point I had my palm red and just like all these little I crazy little. I was like, you're getting your face red, like everything's being red. <laughs> so, you know, for, you know, I think that a lot of people who know me think of me as a pretty you know, logical person, but I have this like, kind of, you know, weird interest in things like having my palm read and like I learned how to read tarot, tarot cards and like more spiritual kind of. I think it's because you're from Seattle. I came, back, <laughs> I came back and I came back and I said, you know what? I'm going to go figure out this adoption thing. Because I think also oh. I figured out that it wasn't even about an age thing, but it was sort of a, what, you know, what am I waiting for if it's a thing that I know I'm sure of? And, yeah. um, and I think also to me becoming a, a parent was just it's like it had nothing to do with becoming a wife interesting so those two concepts existed like completely independently they didn't have to be together or dependent on one or the other and so anyway i started the adoption process as a single parent um at the time in the early 90s i mean i was pretty sure at that point that i wanted to adopt from from china um for a million reasons and um you know first of all being chinese myself um, but it's, I mean, it just sort of set a bunch of things in motion. And, you know, once I sort of was done with all the paperwork and having my application ready, I, I said, okay, it's going to be probably nine to 12 months. Cause at the time it was about nine to 12 months wait. Mm -hmm. And I should do all the things that I, um, I probably couldn't do very easily if I had a baby in tow. So exactly. one of the, so one of those things was to, go to Peru and hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. And I will be oh honest, I actually didn't, I didn't actually know what that entailed, but I just, you know, a girlfriend agreed to go with me. And I said, look, I'm going to go anyway. So I went with this, this company, um, Gap Adventures, which is actually um, a, a Canadian company. And oh. um, yeah, I think they're G, they're called G Adventures now. And okay. so I went with them because I don't really speak Spanish. And so I went with them. And then there was this really cute guy in my group. And there were a couple of us. There were five of us who kind of hung out together the whole the whole two weeks. And we all became friends. Mm -hmm. And then we we came and then we came back and we were all American. And um and then when we got back, um his name was Michael and we kept in touch and we were, you know, we're, we're, we're friends. And plus he was like 23. So I'm like, okay. So he's really <laughs> cute and he's 23 or 20. I don't even know how old he was. 23, 24. I love it. I love it by the way. <laughs> but like, but I remember, like, I remember, you know, we, 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 I think we emailed or we actually, I think we used phones at the time because I didn't even really know how to text. And, um, <laughs> and we would get on the phone and, and sort of like simul simultaneously watch the world series <laughs> and Aww. for hours like and then just talk on the phone and then he started visiting and that was kind of it wow <laughs> yeah and then at some point i think that i said to him you know i was very close to the date of submitting my final paperwork and sending it to china mm -hmm. i said to him i said you know i don't my life is going to be really different in a year and you know i'm like i'm not asking for anything 
I'm just telling mm-hmm. you that I'm not changing my mind about adopting. And he's like, okay. You know, and I'm still thinking like, oh, here, here's this cute 24-year-old. What does he know? And, right. Like, so, like, free-spirited. And, and right. here I am, like, almost 40. And so, the, I don't, I you know, I think that that's what's, what is interesting for me to, like, to be, I guess, older in finding my person is that, mm-hmm. like, we never had, like, the talk. You know, like, whenever I hear, whenever I hear women say oh well you know we have to I have to have my the talk with my boyfriend like where is this going and you know we never really did that we just were from from the get-go we never had this like okay I'm not going to see anybody else you're not going to see any you know I'm not going to see anybody else Mm -hmm. either you know we we never it never we just never did we just I don't know we just we just hung out and it just sort of took its natural course and sounds so organic yeah it did and I think that there is this whole um, element of letting go and I think that because you know he lived um he's he was from Portland so you know mm. there was sort of this forced distance which is why you know I was like hear all this like pandemic like oh this is a pandemic we can't see each other and I said you know mm-hmm. guess what you know people wrote letters and talked on the phone we did lots of things that didn't require us to be next to each other all the right, time right. and and so you know those are just channels or, or links but they're not necessary because, mm-hmm. you know, I've sort of always maintained that you could, you could be, um, world, you know, you could be miles apart and just always feel like the person is next to you, or you could be right next to each other and be worlds apart in heart and mind. Absolutely. Distance yeah. is just, it's just, you know, it's just a circumstance. It, it doesn't necessarily define like whether a relationship is you make it sound so easy <laughs> you're like I, I i booked this like epic trip to peru and then like i met this like hot young guy and now we're together and- I know. it's because like, my sister said that for years she still had friends like is that story about your sister true tell me it's true and i'm like yeah it's true it sounds like a disney movie or something you know it's not all disney <laughs> that's for sure but you know i think that well i mean like i i was joking around like my husband was probably born 42 and I'm like forever like 26 because he's certainly the more <laughs> certainly the more mature one between the two of us and I'm sure that mm-hmm. you know my credit score went up because he actually pays my bills on time <laughs> I you know I don't I don't know I mean I think that there I think that when I look across my friends like surprisingly most of mm-hmm. my good friends are still married to the person they started with your friends are still no really the people who i consider like my first circle of friends like my you mm-hmm. know my closest circle between high school college grad school whatever one person one person who got divorced wow but everybody else is still married to the person that they started with amazing yeah isn't it weird that we can say that that's amazing yeah i find it weird because you know i'm uh i turn 30 next year but i feel like i'm like a lot older because my my older brothers are like in their mid 40s anyway my parents are like super old and, and all of that right so i always feel like really a lot older and like my best friend is like my my older brother who's like 40 something mm-hmm. i i know at least two people my age that are divorced already like we're not even 30 and then they're divorced. People who aren't divorced. It's just that for my close circle, very few of us. It's so insane to me. Like it. It's so for me. I always wonder. Like, 
is it because people are getting married too young or is it because we live in a new culture where it's so easy to just like say thank you next and move on to you know another person yeah i think all of it's true you can't say that there's one reason because there really isn't i but i can what i can say is flip that on its head and say that the marriages that do endure Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm trying to be very specific in saying endure versus survive. <laughs> because endure, you know, like an, endure, yeah. an enduring relationship is work, right? But there has to be this sort of fundamental belief that you want the same things. And not just like, oh, we want a big house and two cars and like, you know, 2.6 children. Not that. I mean, it can be part of that, but it is about believing in value, you know, that you have aligned values, that you are friends. Like... Like I like I tell okay he's probably gonna be really embarrassed I say this but like you know I feel like I have I'm having a sleepover with my best friend every single day. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> you know, it's not like you don't have fights with your best friends or disagreements or take breaks right. or you know there is this sort of respect that you you have stuff that you want to do as people as individuals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the same time. You are the other person's favorite person to be around whenever it's possible, and and if oh you had gosh. you and if you had your choice, whenever it's possible, it would be all the time. But that's not real life. I I agree with you. I think that is like that would be incredible. Um, what I have observed and noticed about like people that I know or my peers is that I think like none of them view their partner as their like best friend. It's always just like he's my boyfriend, and then my friends are separate. You know what I mean? Or she's my girlfriend, but I don't want her to have the same interests as me. I don't want her to. I just want her to be my girlfriend. And then I have my bros. So it's and maybe that's why there's so much divorce or so much break. So many breakups. People are sometimes you meet the right person, but you're not at the right point in life. Like, you know, which is why, you know, I think, you know, with that with that subtle Asian women post, you see so many women who said, oh, I met him when I was 22 and, you know, either dated or didn't date. But then 10 years later, we got together. I think that the closest sort of clinical perspective I've seen is by a guy named John Gottman, who is actually a professor at University of Washington. But he wrote, um, he has, he runs this place called the Gottman Institute. And, um, and he actually found that there were like seven, seven attributes to successful marriages and it would it is probably no, like very few of those attributes are things that someone in their 20s would think he he actually had a lab where these couples would go live in this lab for the weekend and he's i think he's a sociologist and he would just observe and it's like why like for example why would like two old people who just bicker nonstop stay married <laughs> Right. Because they just love each other so much, but it's not about the bickering. Like they, Mm. it's, it's things like mutual respect. They, there's mutual admiration. There's fondness. Okay. Okay. You know, and, and, you know, if they're super lucky, you know, there's like bodice ripping sex too, but you know, but, but the thing (laughs) that holds the relationship together is really fundamental to who they are as people in, within the relationship with each other. That's deep. That's really deep. But it's interesting that he like literally like had hundreds and thousands of these couples going through this lab and he yeah. just observes. Wow. That's awesome. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I guess that, you know, I think that, you know, I look back, it's not like my husband is the first relationship 
I've Mm -hmm. ever had, but I had a lot of, you know, I had strings of broken ones and there were like years where there was no, like literally like seven years where there was really nobody. Um, But I think that like that long time that I wasn't in a relationship was probably the most important time because, you know, it was just me. And then you got to really find out what's important to you and then and and what you're what you know like the question so um I don't know if we ever went so I'm so I'm a personal development I'm a coach okay awesome I didn't know that so one of the things that I have gotten to the habit of asking people is like what are you tolerating like what are the things that you are putting up with that you probably know instinctively that you shouldn't and and the really the idea behind that question is why is it that you think that you deserve the worst thing you can stand? Oh, that's that's those are hard questions. <laughs> but, yeah. but when you couch it couch it that way, like, whoa, like I'm like doing the things that are the the like the most horrible things that I can put up with versus the things that make me joyful, fulfilled, happy, valued, mm-hmm. respected. You know, so, um, so I think that that's a like it is the like why am I putting up with this? Well. You know, something tells you that that's somehow you believe that that's what you're entitled to. But but we're always living at choice, right? You can choose something different. Yeah. And so I think that maybe I, you know, I definitely had relationships where like, you know, the Chinese doctor, I'm sure my grandmother would be really, really happy about that, you know? <laughs> and, but, and, but even though on paper, it sounded like it should have been great, mm-hmm. it, we weren't right for each other. And I think, you know, eventually sort of just knew that. And then yeah. the flip side is, you know, I met, you know, I make the, I, I meet this like six, six, blind haired, blue eyed basketball player <laughs> who's 24, who, as my girlfriend pointed out to me the first time I actually had the guts to tell her about him, she's like, Dorothy, he's not even old enough to rent a car (laughs) i'm like okay do you see my quandary (laughs) you know and then nine months later you know i'm sitting here like okay so it's pretty clear that he's going to move to seattle so he's going to tell his parents yeah you know my girlfriend i'm going to quit the family business um i don't have a job line i don't have a oh no no it's like i don't know i'm quitting the family business i don't have a job lined up and by the way my girlfriend is going to be adopting a baby from China. I mean, can you imagine hearing that? Like, see ya. (laughs) I was going to, okay, honestly, I thought this podcast was going to be about like, how did your parents feel about you dating a younger guy? And how did they feel about you adopting? But now I'm like, wait, how did your husband's family feel about this? Holy crap. I totally won the lottery when it came to in-laws. I I mean, I love my in-laws so much. I do. Mm-hmm. I love them. They're they've been married for fifty years. They um they have been oh through gosh. they've been through a ton. They've raised two boys. Who they have amazing grand. I mean they are amazing, and mm-hmm. I yeah. I mean I just I love them. This is awesome. This is such a happy like story. You know what I mean? Like I'm so used to hearing. Remember we started the story in the middle, right? So there was there was you know there was 38 years where it wasn't so like awesome and perfect. I've been interviewing the people where like you know they're still in their 38 years of like suffering, and then hopefully at one point it's just gonna be like bliss. 
or like something well I think it's if you allow it to you know I'm work in progress just as much as anyone else Mm -hmm. you know there's baggage with relationships I have with other people I'm very different than I was three years ago I mean I it was an interesting discussion to have with my daughter who's now a high school senior she's applying to college and one of the schools um their essay question was you know how did you come to know yourself it but it actually um I think it revealed a really great conversation that we had about how humans are inherently dynamic. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, okay. That, you know, we are sort of at the outset, we think that we are driving to this one thing, right? Mm -hmm. That you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be an engineer, you're going to do this, that, and the other. And, and really everyone is, everyone changes over time and, you know, and to assume that we are all static as human beings is is a really lost opportunity, right? Because there could be so many things. I mean, like we live, we live so much longer than you know, like my grand, you know, like my grandparents lived for a while. But <laughs> Asian Asians um, live forever. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. so you think about like I'm fifty five. Quite frankly, I probably you know my my dad is eighty six, my mom is eighty. So it's very possible that I have another 30 years to go. Oh, for sure. And with the advent of technology, it could be forever. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I need to live that longer. But, but you know, <laughs> but I mean, that that literally means that I'm two thirds of the way through. Right. So right. this whole idea and like I was I've been there's a guy named Chip Conley who um, who had a, a some had a company of very innovative hotels and he's done a bunch of other stuff. Um he just wrote a book called, uh, I want to say the, um, I want to say like, it's something like the wisdom of modern elders. Oh, okay. Awesome. And what I think is, is cool about it is that he, re- I really felt like he was speaking to me. Like I'm like, I love living in the subtle, the subtle Asians world because, you know, it's like one, I get to hang out with all these young people, younger people and mm. see what amazing things people are doing and learn, right? Like, I now know how to learn. I now know how to use Discord. Um, awesome. And at the same time, I get to hopefully lend some experience or wisdom from my experience. So, like, so what Chip Conley did is he actually mentored the guy who started Airbnb. He had, um, what did he call it? He called it a mentorship, where he was a mentor and an intern, while he helped this guy bring bring the company public. Oh wow! Um, and I think that that is it. Was just was really a perspective that I appreciate. That I'm you know I'm trying to kind of d- dive more deeply into, um, because I think that one thing that happens now, because I'm guessing I'm probably around the same age as a lot of um, subtle Asian traits people's parents, is that. You know, I kind of came of age in the 80s and really during the 80s, every, you know, everyone I knew wanted to be in investment banking and, mm-hmm. you know, and women dressed like men. Like we wore navy blue suits and black pumps and, you know, we were, we we're pretty oh, wound, we were wound really like t- wound pretty tight. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I remember this woman who was I think she was she was probably in her early 40s and I was 23 and she mm-hmm. told me that she felt that my generation had really squandered all the hard work that her generation had done with the feminist movement. 
that all the opportunity that they had created for us, that we were just pissing it away. And I was, I was so, I mean, I was angry, right? Yeah. How do you respond to that? I, I, I did. I mean, I was 23. What did I, you know, it's sort of like, well, right. wrong, right? And, 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 you know, I, I, I said nothing, but obviously now, you know, 25, 35 years later, it has stayed with me. And, right. and I think that what is amazing now is that we as women, we have choices, right? You can be a stay-at-home mom. You can be a CEO. You can be self-employed. I mean, for me, after I, after I left my corporate job, I, I took like nine months off and then I was like, okay, I'm over this. Um, and, I, and I started freelancing and marketing. And I, you know, first I just contracted back to my old company and then as I did that, I met more and more women who were sort of in the same place I was. You know, we were in our 30s. We were starting families. We didn't want to give up our careers, but we also wanted to be available to our families. And and so the little consulting outfit I create, you know, I created with me and then it was like, you know, kind of a rotating cast of a few different partners. And then finally, two other women we started, we, we started bringing on other women who wanted what we wanted, which is we were, you know, working on contract at the level that we wanted. We were actually getting paid what we were worth and we were, we could be at home at three o'clock to meet the school bus. Mm. And so I think that that really opened my eyes to the idea that there's always another way, right? And, and there are ways that they tell you we can work and have a life. And then there are ways that we can create for ourselves so I had that company for 18 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, just like everything else, you know, it's like, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it probably started to not be me along, you know, seven or eight years before that. Um, but, you know, I, and then about three years ago, I looked at it and I'm like, okay, what did I really love? And I, I really loved, um, I loved mentoring people. I loved, um helping people realize what they could do. And I loved helping people find an unobvious path to whatever that fulfillment was, whether it was career or family or whatever. So that's when I decided to coach. And, um, and so I think that there is no other group, certainly that I know of that struggles with all of those different conflicting demands than Asian women, because we have, yeah, Right. Because like there are all these things like, oh, you need to, you know, get straight A's and play the violin and, you know, and speak, you know, your family language, take care of your parents, take care of your grandparents and then get into your Ivy League school. Then, you know, it, like it goes on forever. And then all of a sudden you're 30 years old going, OK, so when do I get my turn? Right, right. I have a friend who's like that. She's like Korean and now she's a doctor. And I, I remember catching up with her a year or two ago, probably over like two years ago in Korea. And then she just told me, she's like, like, Nina, I've been studying for like 15 years. You know, she's just like, like, what am I doing? I've been like, now I'm a doctor, but like, oh. And then everyone's busting on you while you're not married yet. <laughs> exactly. And then she tells me about the troubles of her dating because men don't like to date women that are smarter than them or make more or whatever. Exactly. You know, so that was the advantage of, of dating someone so much younger, right? Because I had already like had my career. I already had one career. So, it was, yeah. so if he couldn't get over it, we probably weren't going to last. 
Um, oh, but just to close out that last thought about the modern elder is that what is yes, different yes. now is that, you know, we always, you know, I think that in, our, in let's say, in our grandparents, you know, our grandparents and my parents' generation, you had one, you know, you had one career. Like my dad worked for the same company for 25 years and he yeah. retired with that company, right? Or, you know, it's just mm-hmm. you, you are that thing. And yeah. so you have educate, you know, you, you become an adult or you, you, you know, you, you get educated, you work and then you retire. Mm-hmm. What's different, you know, for my generation is that maybe there's one more chapter in there. Right. And I would say that like, for me, there's actually three chapters, right? I had a corporate kind of more traditional life. I was, I had this sort of entrepreneurial self-employed life. And then now it's my, what I'm calling my version three. So I'm not retired. I may never be totally retired, but retirement now has a very different meaning, meaning, right? Because your mind wants to keep working at something, whatever that is. That's yeah, that's really interesting. It's um, the world has really progressed in such a different way than it ever has. And I think technology has really fast tracked everything and and kind of, I think, blown up a lot of old ideas like, you know, working at the same company for, you know, for, for the rest of your life. It's, it's different still even like between my husband and me, because I was at my company, my last company company for 10 years. And my dad is like, why would you leave such a great company? And I'm like, because eh, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, it's not because I really hate it. You know what it was is that on we you know, we had a an annual company meeting at like a baseball stadium. And they had the 150, 160 people who it was their first day. And they had like front and center seats where the CEO was like jumping up and down on the stage going, aren't you psyched to be here? And they were like totally fired up. And I'm sitting like on the third tier with my girlfriends going, I do not feel like they do. And I wanted to feel that way. Like I should feel that way doing whatever I get up in the day, in the morning doing. And I didn't. And that's really why I knew it was time to go. Because I think that I should feel the way those people did on their first day of work. Mm. Right. So yeah. how do you how do you create that? Yeah, that's hard. Like, um, yeah, basically when the body says no, right? Like, how do you respond to that? For me, like that year, I had like three different stress related like physical disorders. I'm like, this is crazy. My first consulting gig, going back to my old company, like one, I totally underbid the contract. So big lesson learned there. But I was working crazy hours and I was waking up in the middle of the night with nosebleeds. I mean, that is insane. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I didn't even have that when I was an employee. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. So, um, so anyway, so I, I, I think that like this whole idea of what makes a lifetime is very different. And, and, uh, you know, I've, I have this coaching friend and she and I, when the pandemic first started, we started like, we had like this reciprocal coaching thing that we would talk every other week. And, um, and we said, you know, how can we look at this pandemic time instead of saying the pandemic crisis or, you know, pandemic just sounds so awful. What is the mm-hmm. pandemic opportunity? Oh, right. Because, and, and you think about this, like, think about, um, you know, like I grew up in the Bay Area, in, you know, in the Silicon Valley, and it's so expensive. Like I could never move back. I could ne- I mean, I don't ever want to move because the light, you know, the sacrifices for lifestyle would be too huge. But now the pandemic, I mean, it's actually literally changing the demographics where people are leaving California and New York 
because it's so expensive because they now know and their employers now know people Mm -hmm. can work from anywhere. Wow, that's interesting. Totally. I've been hearing about mostly comedians leaving L.A. because I just listen to a lot of like comedy podcasts. So I'm like, you know, Joe Rogan left. So that means like everyone else is going to leave. And then I haven't heard about people leaving New York, though. That is really interesting. I think the New York Times had a piece and, and now like Oracle oracle the technology company they're moving to um they're moving to austin texas tesla is moving oh, wow. a lot to austin oh, Tesla's texas moving too yeah I yeah heard. dell has oh, already been God. there holy moly that's crazy like i said you know there is this the pandemic has created like sort of really pivoted how we see the world now and it's you know it's it's sort of crazy like what's possible and my husband for a long time, for the first couple of years at his company, his boss was in Dallas and the headquarters are here in Seattle. So he's already been working two places, but he's been working at oh. home since March th- this year. Mm. Like We were actually just talking this morning about rearranging the rooms in our house to be mm-hmm. more to, to based on the assumption that he is going to be here working from home for, you know, the foreseeable future. Oh, no, nice. That's awesome. Cause you are you in Vancouver? I can't remember where you are. I'm in Vancouver, yeah. So you know, we, like you and I live in one of the most beautiful parts of the continent. Shout out to the West Coast. <laughs> I like. West I look Coast. out my bedroom window and I see the Cascades and I see the lake. Mm. And you know, yet on two days ago it was beautiful and sunny, and we saw, you could see Rainier, Mount Rainier, you know, on one end of the lake, and you could see Mount Baker on no the other end. Like, right? At all. You know, it's yeah. it's a, it's gorgeous. And so, like my my daughter is a climber and a backpacker, so she has. You know, so she has gone out to, you know, she's been backpacking, climbing, and she went, she's gone skiing a couple times, and, you know, she tried backcountry, she said, okay, she goes, I don't need to hike and ski, so that's not, not." (laughs) she's like, that was stupid. (laughs) But, you know, so I think that that actually, like, she's, she has found, she's found her people, she's found a way to do the things that she loves to do the most, Um, but I think that, but I think that's not true for everyone, right, and and it's you know it is, it is true all the isolation you know we're social creatures yeah i i think um because i i like being alone so quarantine hasn't been too difficult but but it's definitely taught me like i'm not i like to be around people more than i thought i did because we're a family and i'm sure people are like, no way she is but we are a family <laughs> we, we are a family of introverts like I like I will like talk to you for you know however many however much time and then I'm gonna go sit in like a dark room for you know, three hours until the next time I have to talk to somebody. Um, so I think that it is easier for introverts, you know, because we find our way, right? We don't really notice. Yeah. And yeah, so, for sure. like, I was trying to explain to someone, like, in in my family, I'm really the only one who's on social media, and like, mm-hmm. and so they assume like, oh, it's because you're so extrovert. I'm like, no, it's not. It's because it's also the same reason why I like to text because then I get to choose when I engage. Right, right. right? And sometimes it gets me in trouble because then, it, like, if I if I if I like reply to someone's post a little too quickly, I'm like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, but <laughs> but um, but there like the control resides with me on right, when I'm going right. to engage, and if I don't want to talk to that person, I don't, ha- or if I don't want to see that person, I can mute them, I can block them, like, I have control over the social interaction, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, if it's an in-person thing, or you have to go to work every day, like, you can't go running to the bathroom every time someone pisses you off, like, <laughs> 
I have to go to the bathroom again. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. Well, that's that's interesting. Um. I didn't really think about it that. I, I don't know. Uh, my thing with the the whole the term introverted, I think, has been so uh, misunderstood, right? And and yeah. And I think it's that because people associate like introvert with like socially awkward and I'm like no I, I don't think those are the same like maybe some socially awkward people are introverted but I don't think being introverted means you're socially awkward. it means and where like, you get I, your energy yeah and, and if we define it as energy then I'm an introvert but so many people meet me and they're like you must have so many friends you're so outgoing you're so and I'm like whoa 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 whoa, whoa, whoa calm down <laughs> like you <know>, chill relax <laughs> yeah and like i could be at home like i like it's i'm totally cool like i travel by myself well is that an introverted thing i don't know anyway that, yeah, that's I a confidence think. thing because i don't know is, is it a okay but that like that doesn't have to do with extroversion or introversion right like it's just like a. I think you know like i um did you ever read the book book quiet no oh you I should haven't. read it it's all about introverts yeah you you would enjoy it but it's, it's it good? yeah it, it's good it's I mean, it's really about how to use your introversion as a superpower. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up the audiobook version because I don't read. But I, my but daughter I thinks all I do is play Candy Crush, and I said, "Well, <laughs> that may be true, but I actually do consume a lot of." That's only fifty percent true. Um... <laughs> I know. Well, every every few months, she's like, "What what level are you on?" She's like, "Oh my god, mom." You're like on level like three thousand twenty, you know, two hundred and eighty-seven. I'm like, yeah, but but look at your eighth grade science teacher. She she like passed seventy-five levels since Thursday. It's oh <laughs> like so. incredible. <laughs> so good. Um, I was wondering if we can talk a bit about um, you choosing to adopt uh, your daughter. Right. Like, like, I think that's so interesting because I, I always find adoptions. I don't know why, like my, no, no one in my family was adopted, like nothing like that. But I've always been so, so, so interested in adoption stories. I've no, like, I've watched like so many documentaries about kids that were adopted. It's like really creepy, actually. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so into it. So I, cause I just find it like, how, how do they feel like growing up, like being an adopted kid? So I never look at it from the parents point of view. Like it's always the documentary is always about like an Asian kid that was adopted by a white family. And then they feel like, you know, if, like for them, meatloaf is normal and like noodles are weird, you know, but they're like Korean or whatever. So I want to get, you know, the parents point of view, like, um, see, how do I, so I'm trying to like figure out how to like tell this story. Like you. you can see all the, you can see all the, all the like parental trauma that came out of that. My favorite topic, by the way. <laughs> parental trauma yeah <laughs> i like before I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about a project that i'm working on which will you know i'm sure lead to other conversations but I, I mean i was i was a voracious reader. i mean i i was a voracious le reader for most of my life um okay. and i think i was in fifth fifth or sixth grade i'm not totally sure but i had this book that i loved called the family that nobody wanted and um, and it was a book okay. about the the Doss family. It's D's and David O S S. And I think they were like in the I want to say they were from like the fifty nineteen fifties. And he's a pastor, and you know, pastor and his wife, and they had one child, and one one biological child, and they were very poor. Um, but they started to find all of these kids who were considered unadoptable because certainly back then transracial adoption just wasn't allowed. Mm -hmm. And if you had a spe if you had a special needs kid, 
and you were transracial or, you know, non-white, forget it. Mm-hmm. And this family ultimately ended up adopting like 23 kids. Oh my gosh. Um, anyway, so I read that book. I just, I mean, it, it covered everything from poverty to, to racism to um, acceptance and love and special, you know, and, you know, disability. And like, it, it was like all the things. And so I was, you know, so I was in, you know, fifth or sixth grade. I want to say it's sixth grade. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, I just love that book. I read it over and over and over again. And so from then on, I just knew that I was going to adopt somehow. Like, I didn't really think about anything beyond that. Like, when, where, who, would I be married? Would I, you know, I mean, I just, that it, at a minimum, my family would be blended with yeah. adopting bio kids. And then, well, so you know the sort of the, the fast forward story. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I think that like for my, you know, for the bulk of my adult, like my young adult years, you know, it's like, it was really sort of the thing that I was sure of, right? That, that I knew I wanted to be a mom. Were you like worried about, I don't know, like um, genetics and things like that? Cause I know in the Asian community we're like pretty racist with like, even within the Asians, but but like the amount of prejudice Asians have against adoptees, I think is huge. Like I, right. It's like, I have a friend, she, she dated a uh, Korean adoptee and her mom lost her shit. Her mom was like, you don't know his background. You don't know what diseases he has. You don't know if he's a product of incest. Like her mom went off on her for even dating this guy who was like, just like, you know, some nice boy. And I think that if not for the fact that my mom was adopted and she, in you know, long story short, she knows her, it was actually adoption. She was adopted by her uncle. So her dad's brother. Oh during okay, during the nice. war so mm-hmm. you know so, and, and you know that's like one her story to tell and two like probably way longer than we have today but um but I think that you know just having adoption in my world certainly yeah. made it you know um much more much more acceptable or or just you know certainly more palatable um and I don't know I just you know I think that I just have always had this attitude of like, well, I'll just figure it out. You know, I just, I'll just figure it out. I, I, it doesn't really get much more complicated than that. I just, I figure it out. And, and, you know, so usually for me, the lead up takes a lot of time, but like once I sort of cross the line, it's like, okay, you know, can't turn back now. And I just keep going. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of how you have to make decisions. Otherwise you don't really make them right. <laughs> yeah. Like I, like I'm, I'm sort of a dysfunctional perfectionist to begin with, where, you know, I am probably more um, handcuffed by the fear of a less than perfect outcome than I am about actually trying to be perfect all the time. So it's, it's you know, it's like I will work on an idea forever, but I actually might not launch it ever because it won't come out exactly the way I kind of hope for. So I'm trying to, this, like, this is my, this is my, my 2021 challenge is to get over that. <laughs> With your daughter, I was wondering, like, did you let her know she was adopted from, like, the get-go? It's never been a secret. I mean, you know, other people can, are certainly free to disagree, but, um, mm-hmm. but I think that, for better, for worse, I think it's important to be open um, from the beginning. And, you know, I think that 
with net positive, but not always positive, net positive results, but not 100% positive results. You know, my husband and I have always had this attitude of just sort of framing truth, always telling the truth, but only always having it sort of like uh, age appropriate. Right. Like, what was that first conversation like when you when you told her? Well, she had already seen all I mean, well, so first of all, she was 13 months when I went to get her from China. So there was never a comp, you know, there was never a conversation. You know, I guess it, you know, it's going back to what we were talking about with relationships. It just sort of is. So she'd always seen the videos. She saw, you know, she's seen the video of them handing her to me. She knew that, like, I, I have, I had, um, <laughs> dating myself again, I had a Yahoo group and I would post every day. And so I think that, you know, when she was old enough to read, I printed out all of my, my posts from the, my time in China. So it's funny because I was like going through her desk because I've now adopted her old desk and I found the printout. So she kept it. You know, so she knows what the first five or, you know, certainly knows what the first week or two were with the two of us in China. And yeah, so she never, we just, you know, she knows why she knows, she knows everything. There wasn't, you know, I've given her her dossier to read through. She can see what I wrote to the officials in China. It just, it just is. I mean, I think that, you know, there, it, it, it's, you know, going back through, you know, going back to, you know, the, the, the idea that, that humans are dynamic. I mean, you know, she... She's, I think that she has always had a fairly, like, I guess, clinical perspective. Like, oh, mom went to China, you know, and, and she's asked questions along the way. <laughs> like, you know, she's yeah. like, did I even, you know, like she was, you know, sees a baby breastfeeding. She's like, did I drink milk out of your, you know, out of your boobs? And I'm like, no. She's like, well, whose did I? And I'm like, well, your birth mom. And, you know, we just talk about it. Mm. I love the openness and the comfort that you guys have with each other. Like, that's crazy to me, you know, like to have that level of comfort and openness. The fact that an Asian American gets to be so open with their Asian parent, you know, and I know it's because like your parents were immigrants and you're American, but like, oh, just even hearing that, it just still blows my mind. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because like all my friends were just like, yeah, like we have like a language barrier with our parents. They don't understand us. We don't understand them. And it's like uh, to have like any sort of deep connection or anything other than just them. Well, I mean, I'm sure I I sit with like plenty of (laughs) plenty of like Asian mother trauma, like with my my own mom and then, you know, with my daughter and me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure it all, yeah, and, it, and it like shows up in all sorts of like places that you're like, oh, you know, I really didn't want to be that way. And that way, you know, like, like right now, you know, it's like, I'm like tearing my hair. I'm like, she should be working on her applications. Why is she working on her essays? You know, <laughs> I worked on mine for like a year and she's like, wing it. Right. And, and my husband's like trying to like talk, you know, like he didn't grow up in that environment. He's like, he's like, you know, she owns this and, and what happens happens. And like, okay, she did everything you said and she got in then you know how do you know that like if she did it your way that that was the reason or if she doesn't get what she wants and she ends up you know working at the grocery store is that really like like it's not you you know it's not your life and so right you know so he he's like okay do you want that because you want that for her or because you want that because she wants that for herself and i think that dialogue is you know i i still have to vent you know, but I try wow. to like I try I work really hard to not vent at her and like 
vent somewhere else. <laughs> that was such a good like line that your husband said to you. Yeah, you know, we'd gone through coaching ourselves. Like, okay, like, Holy. all right, be really honest about how you know. It's like you know, like we're like, well, we're judgy. That's what we do. We judge. He's like, well, and then and the and the coach is like, well, how's that working for you? Like, well, it's kind of not. So you know, we've had to we've had to adapt too. You know, and I think part that's part of that's part of growing as parents too. You know, when when your kid and maybe that's an American or a Western thing where, you know, when they become adults, they're adults, you know, like, right. like it's very, it's very um, like the fact that she is like legally not beholden to me in nine months. Right. How do you feel about that? I'm terrified. I mean, oh <laughs> I'm <gosh>. terrified. <laughs> you know, it's like, she's so little, you know, and, but you know, yeah, she's smart. And, you know, when, when, like, she, like, she tells me, like, when she's down at the climbing gym, like, some guy will, like, follow her around and try to talk to her. And she's like, oh, mom, they're so gross. They're, like, 29 years old with a man bun oh. and an Asian fetish. She's like, I'm like, so what do you do? She's like, I just, yeah. like, I just, like, I'm, I'm a better climber. I just outclimb them and I leave. And then they keep, still keep trying to talk to me. And, but, you know, like, listening to her and she's like, she's managing it. I'm like, okay, you know, she's, you know, she is managing it. Oh. Wow. She told me she's had guys <laughs> say that to her. And, you know, like she was same, you know, same, like, you know, hipster, hipster guy, you know, 20 something with an Asian fetish. <laughs> she just turns yeah. around and she's like, I'm 15, back off. <laughs> yeah, because they can't really tell. They're like, she's either 15 or 25. I'm going to shoot my shot anyway. <laughs> like, so, um, yeah, they, you know, they can't tell. So, did you ever see Joy Luck Club? Oh, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. I heard it's super good, though. So, so that movie came out, I don't know what, in the 80s? 80s, maybe. I can't remember. Um, like Ming Na, you know Ming, the actress Ming Na. She was the she was the lead character, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and one of the mothers in the movie is the grandmother in Crazy Rich Asian, Lisa Lisa Liu. Really? Oh. So for me, seeing um, Joy Luck Club, it was really the first movie where I felt represented. Right, right, right. And I could never really explain to anybody. And, you know, most of my friends growing up were, were not Asian. I mean, I was sort of, you know, that that really, really lovely expression. I was pretty much a banana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that movie really, like, there was just so much in it for me, you know. And, mm -hmm. and so it was very interesting for me, you know, literally 30 years later, to see crazy rich Asians with my daughter. Oh my gosh. Right? Because just think about like how crazy it is that it's been 30 years. Mm -hmm. To finally see. To see a movie that even had like anyone who was pseudo normal Asian act. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, Rachel is most of us. Yeah. No, she's like the, she's such a good representation of. An Asian Canadian, race. Asian American. Yeah, Asian right? American, like. All of that. You know, because like when I watch it, I'm like, yeah, she's like, I feel like I can relate to her. Maybe not to not maybe lot. not to Henry Golding's kind of. Yeah, well, I, besides like the super hot, you know, super rich husband she has, <laughs> maybe one day. But, um, but yeah, no, yeah, I wanted to ask because like now Asians are kind of on fire. Like, there's so much Asian content. I feel like. Well, it's um, it's hot, right? It's like now they're like now yeah. that it's sort of proven that it can make money. Right, right, and Hollywood's about that 
that money money but you know like so john chu who directed crazy rich asians actually is from my hometown in california oh really our parents like their his dad's restaurant is was like the like the one of the biggest games in town oh what his dad had a restaurant too (laughs) on the corner of san antonio and el camino but he like he he gets it right he get he he got us he yeah definitely understood the, the Asian American experience and then definitely like going back to Asia. It's it's interesting, though, because like I wish they had because I know Singapore is like a fair like they speak English there. You know what I mean? But like I would I would have liked to see like, you know, maybe she goes and find you know the next book. She actually goes to China and finds her lost father. Oh, my God. Is it good? I, I, I don't I haven't read the book, but the movie's coming out. But what it does capture. So the, I think I guess the two takeaways that I got were sort of scenes with Michelle Yeoh. Um, mm-hmm. one was where Rachel says, oh, my mother was really, you know, cause she's really close to her mom. And she said, my mother really, um, gave me the opportunity to pursue my passion. Mm-hmm. And then, so Michelle Yeoh says, oh, that's the difference between you Americans and us. You follow passions and we have duty. Right. All right. So you think about like, you know, think about all these things that people, you know, in our, in, you know, where we, where you and I met and what I'm right. expected to do. Supposed and that, to that, do. That, yeah. that, you know, that tension between passion and duty. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it is because, you know, we are children of immigrants, right? And so that's always, it's always a mix or it's always a tension. I sense it's a mix, but, and so, you know, like certainly like for me, like when I work with my, my Asian clients, like, well, they should just do their job, you know, like, you know, when they're managing people. And I said, well, you know, like they don't understand this need to like lead or motivate or inspire people. You just do your job because mm-hmm. it's duty. It's duty, right? You're, you, you, and there's a fundamental value, cultural value to duty that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with passion. It, it's just a, it's just an interesting dynamic. And then there was something else she says, I think it's in that same dialogue. Oh, it, it was really, oh, it's when she, it's when she basically, tells the mother like she's like you know yeah you're you know you may get what you want the mother said something like um it doesn't matter you're always going you you will never be one of us oh my gosh yeah yeah that was that is us like i i always tell people you know i i describe my my existence as an american born in you know born in brooklyn new york Mm-hmm. to immigrant parents like you know i'm i'm not a person you know like i am a person of color but i'm not because i'm not black or brown right right i have a lot of privileges that white people do but not all of them mm-hmm. so when you check that box i'm not even other i'm neither and really yeah. the only place yeah. that i feel like i can be american and asian and be part of things and feel like all me is hawaii because I'm I'm fully American there and I'm fully Asian and everyone looks like me. Hawaii is Hawaii is so cool. <laughs> Why is Hawaii so cool? Because we get we don't have you know we get to be all the things that we are. Yeah, Hawaii is so cool. Yeah, it's but, yeah, but I like, think it is about that though. Like you know, there are very there are very few places when when we you know because it's not like being an a European. Canadian Asian. European or you no no not even that it's like you can talk about being like Anglo in Canada mm-hmm. or the US 
because mm-hmm. because they can pass. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my god. It drives my my younger brother dated a white girl, but her parents are immigrants from Romania. And so so she understood like the immigrant struggle, like her parents don't speak English, like all that stuff. But then when she walks on the street, everyone's just like, oh, but you're Canadian. Right. And then they would treat my brother like he's, you know, the foreigner. And it's like they're like the same. Right. So, yeah, that thing always pissed me off. It's fascinating just to even try to put a spotlight on that for people who I consider allies. Right. Like they want to understand Mm-hmm. And, and I, how do I you know, explain it? Like, yes, this big mouth Asian American friend of yours still walks into Starbucks <laughs> and looks around to see if she's safe before she orders her drink. Yeah, I'm like, like snapping my fingers, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, it's funny. In Vancouver, we have like a very dense Asian population. So a lot of my Asian friends don't understand what it's like to because i i grew up in vancouver city but then my family moved to like a bumfuck like very white place like in grade nine when i was in grade nine so i was like i was taken out of this place where i felt normal and into a place where people were like go back to china you ching chong ding dong ling long whatever all the words all the chongs like all the things and so when i talk to my friends about like racism they're they like from vancouver they just still like do not understand um what i'm talking about at all yeah because they don't they don't experience like they don't experience it yeah like with my with I think one of the saddest days for me was when I found out that someone someone called my daughter a Jap to her face. Oh. You know, in probably one of the most neighbor progressive neighborhoods in the city of Seattle, which is progressive, mm-hmm. you know, by def you know, as right, people right, think right. that people think of it progressive. And you know, it just it's just heartbreaking for me, you know, knowing that the things that happened to me, when I was that age, still happen, right? It's right. like every time people say, oh, it's 2020, I thought racism was dead. I'm like, no, not dead. <laughs> not dead, still alive. Very, very much alive. Yeah, it's still, it's just people are, stuff. people know to be more polite about it. It's like people know, you know, people know that, oh, you know, and, and then they say, oh, well, I'm not a racist. I'm like, okay, but people who aren't racist can also do racist thing if it creates harm. It creates mm-hmm. harm, no matter how much you, you know, you, how much you might, you know, no matter how much you, how much you believe that the intention was, you know, was, was noble. If you create harm, acknowledging that harm is really, is really important to, to the, you know, to the person who were, who was harmed. Right. But there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of work, but I think that that's where I've had different converse, you know, little, you know, little conversations like within subtle Asian like extended communities and stuff and and you know for me like when I taught you know, when I was when I was coaching executives like C-suite executives a couple of years ago all all women you know I probably fashioned mm. myself as a feminist um mm. for the first 20 years of my career and really it's only since I became a parent that I realized mm-hmm. that you know, the Asian wrapper around that or that that's integrated with that is has sort of been um, largely not ignored, but set aside because like I was just defined by my 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 womanness. Yeah, as a woman in the workplace. Yeah. Right. But yeah. 
And so, you know, I think now, like, especially as I, as I watch younger people sort of navigate the, the, the stresses and for some that, you know, it's, it's true and deep trauma with their Asian parents, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're like, it's, it's very hard to change. Like for me, my parents were pretty progressive. Like they never said I had to be a doctor or an engineer or that I had to take care of them. In fact, they went above and beyond to make sure that we didn't have to take care of them. So, you know, my upbringing was a little bit different in that, in that manner. What has, has been missing is, is a spotlight on, on role models and just representation by my generation and just sort of a normal, a normal expectation that we would send the elevator down to help the rising young Asian professionals up when we've hit whatever floor, you know, when we've reached our floor, then, you know, what do you do to bring more people up? Mm. And, and I think that that's where I have, like, that's been this year for me, like really figuring out like, okay, what, what can I do? Um, Because I get it. I get, I, I, I know that a lot of us have come up with all the different reasons why our relationships with our parents have kept us, down kept us back kept us away from the things that our hearts you know our our hearts are telling us that we want um but i think that part of that is also exposing all the amazing people who have thrown out that playbook before you know and who are are my age who like did something that was different and Uh actually you know thrived right like i like when I had my consulting firm, I think the thing that I cared about the most is I realized how underpaid I'd been for so long. Mm. And it was so, you know, so for me, one of the things I actually loved was getting people what they were worth in their pay, like negotiating those contracts. And, um, and so, well, you know, whatever it is, I think there has always been the, well, I did it, so you guys can do it too. I did it with no help. So you guys can just like put, pull up your bootstraps and do it yourself. I, I just don't think that is something is, that is going to serve generations of Asians if we are going to thrive in the future, right? Like we need lawyers, we need politicians, we need people to go into things that aren't STEM fields. You know, we need those voices, right? We need, right. you know, like the things that you're doing, right? Like you're amplifying voices that mm-hmm. probably don't get heard, you know, sort of in our normal exposure. It's so important. Yeah, I, I yeah, no, I, I think I agree with everything you said. I, I think it is important to get our voices out there, especially being Asians and being, you know, stereotyped as like quiet, meek, um, like all the things that are the opposite of like powerful and strong. who we actually are. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciate you saying that. I, I just kind of treat my podcast as like a little, it's just an excuse for me to get to like talk to strangers and hear their stories. Cause that's really what I like to do. Um, but I think you, <laughs> you know, you are serving a, a bigger mission. I mean, whether you, right. whether you, I mean, the fact that you actually decided to do this is mm-hmm. like, to me is so Amazing. Like, so I will tell you, um, I am sitting here at my desk looking at a picture of a book. Okay. Um, and so I, you know, when I was kind of going through, you know, my own training and, and trying to pivot my career, I said, oh, you know, what I really want to do is I want to write a book. I'm going to call it Confessions of a Failed Tiger Mom. And I know the name of the first chapter. <laughs> 
I love the title, by the way. Great. Some other person has that blog, that, that URL, so I'm going to have to think of a different title. And and so, um, but it is really about, like, you know, there, you know, there was that Tiger Mom book that came out, Amy Chua, you know, and, you know, amazing mom, amazing professional. She's done so many things. Her, her daughters are incredible. But, you know, what if, what if we didn't feel the pressure to follow that playbook, right? What if you didn't have a t- Tiger Mom that would, you know, and... And what kind of lessons would we learn if we tried to do it a different way? Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of the first, I'll just tell you, the whole idea of the first chapter was because I was sitting, I was sitting at the doctor's, eye doctor's office and I was getting, you know, my eye exams, you know, because most of us are myopic anyway. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm looking and I'm like, we're looking at like, you know, you know, read, you know, line number four. And I'm like, you know, read nine before. And he's like, read number five. And I said, read number five. And then, you know, now it's starting to get a little harder He's like, yeah. okay, like, you know, he's like, read number six. And, and I get like half of them right. And like, okay, well, the C and the O and the Q, they all look kind of the same. And the P and the mm-hmm. R, they all look in the B, they all look kind of same. So, but, you know, I can kind of squint and I'm like squinting and I'm blinking and I'm trying to like wet my eyes a little bit more and, you know, all the tricks, right, to get it all right. He was like, okay, he's like, so I get through it not great it's hard so he's like okay why don't you try to read the last line and mind you this is with contacts on already and i can't (laughs) read the bottom line and 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 i'm like and i'm sort of like half like guessing and half like you know kind of reasoning it out and and you know clearly i can't read line seven and so he's like okay and he's like he brings that thing over. He's like, and he was about to start the like better one, better two, better two, better three. And, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I go, I want another chance. I think if you gave me another chance, I could probably get <laughs> the last line all right. And he's looking oh. like I'm completely insane. I'm like, no, no, no. I go, I just want another chance. I think I can get it all right. And he's like, it's not going to help. And so, you know, like, all right. And then finally, like 10 minutes later, I'm like, that really wasn't going to help you. He's like, no, this is not going to help you either. <laughs> Right, so I want to tell you, I've told this story like, you know, a couple of times because it's true. I'm like, I'm sitting in the doctor's office and, and this is all happening. Yeah. And I walked and going, God, why was that so fucking important to me that I had to get that last line? Because it wasn't like, <laughs> you know, like, that pre- like I had to get it per- I had to get all the answers. Oh, my God. <laughs> so one thing that is sort of funny is that so I have told this story before and mm-hmm. generally my, you know, anyone Asian cracks up the only other person that cracks up is my husband because one he's like that too and you know he's married to me but like most people who aren't asian like yeah that's really dumb why would you care like Mm. and and so but it sort of proves you know but it sort of prompted like okay why did it matter so much right you know and and so there's this whole thing of like you know like the ugly side of being of being you know being a perfectionist Mm. the other day someone i read of a good course like don't you know striving for perfection and in you know at the cost of good of doing good Mm. is not is not a worthwhile fight right so okay um so you know so there's that one thing it's like okay Perfect isn't really useful if it doesn't actually serve what you're trying to solve, right? Because the right. good outcome is like, because the good outcome is really, you know, a very simple thing, which is all. You, sometimes all you need is the right pair of glasses. You just need new glasses. That's it. <laughs> that is the goal, right? So, so like putting forth all the work to the for the right outcome is 
It's like, which which prize are you looking at? The perfect score? Not going to help you. New glasses? Yes, that is going to help you. Wear your glasses, people. Get your eyes checked. <laughs> Don't worry about the last line. But, you know, but it, it just like, but for that, like I, the fact that like every Asian person I tell that story to <laughs> thinks it's hysterical and everybody else is like, why, that, that is the stupidest. Like, why is that? Like, why do we feel this need to get a perfect score even on things that don't matter it's it's just like built into us you know like our parents have told us you know you got to be the best and and i a lot of my asian friends i've talked to like they always found school extremely easy and i think it just might have come from that you know like i just got to get it and if i'm not gonna like i'm gonna get i'm gonna get this don't yeah don't get in my way <laughs> it's just weird though like you know like i i think that there is this sort of Certainly for, you know, kids of, you know, kids of immigrants, right? There, that there's a sense that we have to be better, right? Not, not better, oh, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. you have to be better. Like, like my, my latest, um, you know, the example I look at is, um, I think her name's Kim Yang. She's the new, I think that's her first name. I could have it wrong, but she is the first general manager of a major league baseball team. She is the GM for the Marlins. There's a, there's what? a, there's a great article about her, um, oh. Where she says, you know, a lot of those interviews I've had in the past shouldn't have happened. I mean, she's like 50, she's in her like mid, early mid 50s. And you look at her resume and it is banging. I mean, amazing. Mm -hmm. Like she, like if she had been a white man, she would have, you know, she, she would have been considered seriously years ago. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. But she's incredibly mm -hmm. qualified. Right. And right, it's just right. like, you know, and so when people say, oh, well, yeah, if you're going to have a diversity high, just make sure that they're, you know, actually qualified. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, we, our whole lives have had to be at least twice as good as the next guy. 100%. Yeah. So this whole idea of, like, being qualified is the last thing that you need to worry about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Circling back to the mom thing. So I'll talk. So how this all ties back to, like, parent trauma. <laughs> My favorite topic, yes. <laughs> so all the, you know, after all these years, you know, like, you know, I can point to all these like horrible things that I think my mother has done to me, right? And, right. you know, I don't think, like, do I wish I had seen these things when I was 25? Sure. But in, you know, but I don't think I would have been able to see this, these things had I not been 55. Right. Okay. So the two things that really, like, I remember, and, you know, they're vivid memories. I've thought about them off and on for years, is that, you know, my mom was really the one who made me a feminist. Oh, I'm curious. Tell me more. <laughs> she put my, you know, she was working when my dad was working on his PhD. She would take the train from, you know, their really scary, you know, hairy, scary apartment in Brooklyn, New York, into New York city mm -hmm. and she worked for um columbia records which is oh wow yeah like way back in the day and yeah. you know and at one point her boss said you know we think you have a lot of promise we'd like to help you get to law school and she didn't do it she did not do it she said no because she my dad got a job and we moved to boston and oh, she was okay. a stay-at-home mom you know, for years and finally went back. And she had tried many times to go back to work, go back to school. Um, but, you know, our family situation didn't really allow for it. My dad was traveling, had a job. He actually was working in China in the early 1980s and um, and setting up an American company in, in Beijing. So my mom really put aside a lot of her own dreams for her family. At the same time, though, you know, she, like, 
the thing, like, it was so important to her that all of her, you know, there, I have two sisters, so, so three daughters. Her three daughters mm-hmm. were financially independent. Mm, okay. We had to make our own money, manage our own money, and that we honestly didn't have to depend on them, on our spouses to survive. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I guess it just never occurred to any of us that we wouldn't be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say that, you know, for a long time, my mom said, you know, like, why do you need to, why, why do you need to um, excel at things that you do? She was like, because that creates choice. When you get good grades, you get to choose the best schools. When you get to the best schools, you get to choose what path you have. Um, so it's about, it was about choice. And that is a very feminist view of the world. Right. That women should have choices and you create a world where for yourself where you can have choice. I would say that one of the hardest things, I think, I don't know if it's Asian or I think it's just young people in general. Like we actually don't know how to how to make a good choice. So that sort of. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> but at least, you know, but but a lot of these things like that, our parents, these sacrifices or whatever, you know, that are made by our parents is really to give not just opportunity, but to give us choice. Right. It doesn't always feel like we have choice. Because, you know, mm-hmm. we can talk about parental guilt, but, you know, quite frankly, parental guilt happens in every culture. Yeah. <laughs> Except for maybe, you know, North American cultures, pretty much. Uh- <laughs> you know, go talk to my friends who are Jewish. Oh <laughs> they're all doc- They're all doctors, too. So. Oh, my gosh. It's we are not we do not have a monopoly on parent trauma and guilt. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that thinking about all of the all of the things that the sacrifices they made are really to create choice, which is really one of the most unselfish things our parents can do for us. Yeah, no, definitely. The other thing I, you know, and this came up in a couple of conversations that I've really realized, like, you know, when we were growing up, you know, my sisters and I, we all played piano. Um, We were big readers. One of my mom's biggest, um, biggest priorities was to make sure that we were all good writers that we could communicate. Interesting. Okay. So we had to be able to speak well, you know, you had to speak well, you had to be able to write well, you had to be able to communicate. And a lot of that actually came from my grandfather, her father, who was a diplomat, mm-hmm. who spoke, I don't oh. know, somewhere like five, six, seven languages. So my wow. sisters and I all like at least have studied two or three other languages. Other, You know, we, we all speak Mandarin. We all speak English. Mm-hmm. And then we all studied French and Spanish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, language was really important to be able to be, communicate, be able to write well. Those are things that my mom had a huge, put a huge premium on. Wow. I feel like this has been lost as those of us who are immigrant kids move further away from our original countries, our, our ancestral countries, is that, mm-hmm. you know, Asian, There, there is, if you look across, like, the history of Asia, like all of the most progressive thought, innovation, philosophy, even if you think about like, like wartime strategy, who are the, who are, you know, some of the most impactful warriors in history? They are all from Asia. Right. So we are not, you know, yes, we are scientists and engineers, Mm -hmm. but we are so much more like than that as as a as a broader people 
right? It is like, like history and humanities and philosophy are not, are not monopolies of Europeans. I mean, they, they have appropriated most of it from other cultures. Right. And I feel like there is this element of pride in our, in our history as, as a people that has been lost as we get more immersive in Western societies. That we should be proud and we should do all of the, you know, like, why do you study music? You know, well, one, there's math, right? But there's also the culture. Culture is important. You know, being, mm-hmm. to, being well-read, being to appreciate, appreciate different kinds of music, the arts, theater, all of those things are, you know, are grounded in Asian culture, not Western. Right. That's so interesting. I never, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really think about it from that perspective because I, I feel like now the climate has been a, a lot about being angry. <laughs> and um, You can be angry. Then... <laughs> it's plenty to be angry about. <laughs> but yeah, but I think what you said was, is yeah we don't really think about that a lot like looking back into the roots and the history and there's a lot to be proud of about being asian because i guess i've been really focused on like trying to kind of erase you know any sort of asianness i have a kind of it's, it's because... not uncommon right it's safety right it's a lot of safety yeah. in it yeah but i think yeah you're right there's a lot to be to look at and to to think about oh it's so confusing being asian canadian honestly <laughs> like i'm like <laughs> we are so yeah. much more than a test uh-huh. score right and and you know it's it's you you think about you know when immigrants come here it is really so much of us being you know not the not the majority or not the dominant identity right it is about survival and very you know, it, it is a very different thing to survive than it is to thrive. Yep. But I think that, you know, you know, so when our parents are just thinking about getting getting things stable, then, you know, all bets are on the future. Right. And there's there's an enormous amount of pressure that goes with it, whether it's said or unsaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. So yeah, all you want to know is about how I met my husband. See where you got. <laughs> Uh, uh, Dorothy, um, I, I feel like this has been such an awesome conversation. Like I, fun. like, no, this is why I have the podcast. It's just, I want to hear people's stories. I want to hear their perspectives. And I think you added a lot of value to my podcast. You know, normally I'm just talking about like coupons. <laughs> <laughs> but I love those stories too, though. The thing about hearing other people's stories is it makes you feel less alone because it's so easy to think like we are the only ones that feel this way. But the more I, I hear people's stories, the more I read or listen or watch, the more I'm like, wow, my suffering is not you know, as bad as other people suffer. Oh, but you know, but it's not even that. I mean, I don't think it's, it's not relative, right? Like it's not Mm. like your suffering is still, you know, whatever you consider suffering is still yours. I mean, it is yours. Um, Mm. But maybe when you talk to all of these people, you get, you know, you get perspective, you get ideas on how you could be different or how you want to show up differently. I mean, I think that that's what is, so amazing about oral histories in general. I mean, I'm the same. Like I, the my last project um, when I worked at Microsoft was to we. It was our 25th anniversary, and we were doing. There's an entire book of 
of short interviews with hundreds of people. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And so I did some of the interviews and it was so much fun. Like that sounds so fun. Oh yeah, it, like, I mean, it was like a one, it was sort of a one-time deep thing. But, but like I was talking to this one guy who was one of the first people to work on um, online gaming at Microsoft, and you know how the people could like, you know, they'd meet, to, like they they would meet at um at some gaming thing, and then like they would fall in love with someone like while they were oh gaming. Like like yeah, they're like people were like hooking up on online games and. And they're like, wait, so they would have dates? Like, he's like, oh, yeah, like, they could, like, you know, they could create, like, you know, it's like Minecraft. Right? You could, like, create a, a movie, oh, yeah. a, a drive-in movie and, like, watch a drive-in right. <laughs> And But this is, like, you know, 20-plus years ago, so it was, you know, much more rudimentary. But I'm like, that's so weird. You know, but now I'm sure there are plenty of gamers who are hooking up. Oh, my God. It's, like, a thing that I don't play video games, so I have no experience. But I like... don't, yeah, I don't game. I mean, you know, I just got a Discord, so what do I <laughs> Yeah, but one of my friends, she's like, she has a boyfriend she's never met now, um, uh, because they play games together. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so weird, right? Yeah, this is so like post, whatever, postmodern, you know? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah There's so, just so interesting. But it's it's you know, but I think that you know it goes back to like humans are dynamic, right? You know, you're never totally. you're not the same person, like because God, you know, if you're the same person. Oh, jeez. Just turn into stone right now, right? Well, it's boring. <laughs> we never even talked about travel after all that. Oh, my God. Okay, we're going to have to, like, do another podcast where we talk about travel and all of that. But, Dorothy, you've been so incredible. Oh, I'm that so was excited. really fun. Thank you for asking me. Well, and thank you for, you know, like, opening up and, like, telling your story to a complete stranger who just messaged you on Facebook. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I think it's so cool. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, do you, do you want people to find you? Where can they find you? Eventually, they'll be able to find me. I'm sort of now. Um, <laughs> I'm relaunching in 21 because I think I really want to. So, um, I've kind okay, of stayed cool. dormant for a while. But if people want to reach, I'll tell you one project I am working on, and I would love mm -hmm. if people know someone that I should talk to. So, sort of along the same lines as you, I made a personal goal to try to talk to a hundred Asian ex women who yeah. are rule breakers and, uh, you know, who were ready to, who burn their playbook, I guess, is what I want to say. Um, so I, I was really excited that I got like, I don't know, 25, 30 people the first time I asked, but it's a long list to get to a hundred. So I just want to, <laughs> I just want to, you know, like, you know, we talked about, like, I, I think it's important for certainly my generation to, sh to let people know that we, we made choices that did not, did not use the plain old, you know, the regular playbook. So right. I'm trying to get to a hundred so they can email me at hello at resonant, R-E-S-O-N-A-N-T dash strategies.com. And right. if they have someone that? that I think they think I should talk to, I would love to talk to them. Awesome. Yeah. Just so many of us. And I think that there are many, like for me, I just want to find the women who, you know, ha who have a, a you know, a, who set a, a route that other people can follow and right. who, who have the same passion that I do around sending the elevator back down. Well, Dorothy, thank you again. This has been great. I've learned a lot. Yeah, Dorothy, thank you so much. This has been 
Awesome. Thank you. I will see everyone on the next episode. Bye. Pass the poutine.